If you're looking for a way to be a helper during this time, truly one of the best ways to get involved at Mental Health Association Oklahoma is to make a donation. Anything will help us continue to serve our participants during this difficult time. So visit Mental Health Association Oklahoma's Facebook page and donate on the COVID-19 Relief Fund or go to mhaok.org and hit the donate button at the top of the page. I don't think this looks good. And if you trace those economic threads historically, we can predict that there's going to be a tidal wave of new homelessness over the next couple of years unless we act quickly to stave that off. That too will impact people of color worse than it will impact white communities. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Mac Leeson, and I am so excited that Jeff Olivet is here with us today. His thoughtful research has revealed that war, natural disaster, and poverty have been the root causes of homelessness. So during this conversation, we're going to turn our attention to the link between COVID-19 and homelessness. And we're also going to touch on topics such as the Tulsa Race Massacre and healing from historical trauma, which is the theme of the Zero Mental Health Symposium coming up, hopefully, in October uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can get all the details about the Zero Symposium at Zero, and that's Z-A-R-R-O-W, symposium.org. All right. So with all that being said, Jeff Olivet, welcome to the Mental Health Download. Uh, thrilled to be here. Um, I'm, uh, I've been working on homelessness and related issues for more than 25 years, uh, starting as a street outreach worker and a case manager. Um, I've worked in healthcare and homelessness and mental health and addiction services and, and HIV work over the years. And these days I'm a consultant. I work nationally with hundreds of organizations and communities around the United States to improve what they do, to understand homelessness in its broader structural context and to address it in ways that are real and lasting. Um, at the root of that work is a, a deep commitment to racial equity. Uh, it has become clear to me and to many of us over the years that homelessness discriminates by race. It's not a colorblind social problem. It is a uh, a racially driven social problem, or, or more precisely, uh, a problem that's driven by structural racism. And a lot of the work I do around homelessness is trying to get at the root causes, not just at the individual vulnerabilities that might determine who becomes homeless right now, but really looking at the societal factors that are at play that drive homelessness on a scale really that we haven't seen since the Great Depression. So, just some quick context where are you? Where are you right now? Like what city? In are the you world, in? I, I'm in my my living room in Cambridge, Massachusetts, locked down like a lot of people are locked down. Uh, my partner Jessica and I have been here for the last month or so um, with our daughter and uh, uh, doing a lot of Zoom uh, connection with friends in a lot of different ways, and then doing uh, most of my work remotely at the moment. Okay, so I think the big question is how COVID is going to affect the rate of homelessness. And then um, I think this will be really interesting how you think racism will play in the treatment of COVID. If you look back at the history of homelessness in this country, it is always related to disaster and always related to economic downturn. Um, you can see spikes happen. And if you do a, a deep historical look at this, you can see it happen during the Industrial Revolution, during a 
Great Recession in the 1850s, following the American Civil War, during the Great Depression, uh, in the 80s when we really saw contemporary homelessness explode onto the landscape and, and grow into what we've, uh, I think, become used to in a, in a very sad way as a, as a reality in the U.S. There's constantly a drumbeat of disaster, natural disaster, war, economic downturn. Um, and if you look at the the early indicators of how bad this economic catastrophe is going to be. Uh, it's going to be something that most of us have never experienced in our lifetimes. And I believe it will rival the Great Depression, not the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. If you think about it in that context, there are two major parts to this catastrophe. One is the loss of human life and health and wellness and the the human you know, medical public health crisis that we're in right now. And then there's going to be the economic fallout that will be very long lasting. I think we're going to see a lot more stories of massive unemployment, a lot more stories of uh, businesses closing for good, not just for six weeks or eight weeks. And, you know, we'll see how long a bridge uh, some of the the recovery money and the federal stimulus money will carry people and carry businesses. Uh, but I, I don't think this looks good. And if you trace those economic threads historically, we can predict that there's going to be a tidal wave of new homelessness over the next couple of years unless we act quickly to stave that off. That too will impact people of color worse than it will impact white communities. And so the to your sec the second part of your question on racial inequities, racial disparities, racial impact, uh, we already know that not just uh, – is the infection rate higher among African-Americans? The death rate is higher among African-Americans. And uh, we can get into why that might be and trying to, to unpack it. I think it's it's being a little overly simplified right now in the media. And, and we need to be careful how we understand that and how we, how we talk to each other about the root causes of that. But the impact on communities of color uh, is going to be twofold. One is the, the medical public health catastrophe and two is the economic catastrophe to follow. So, you know, kind of unpack some of those things that you were talking about um, relating to racial injustice. Well, as I said earlier, you have to understand homelessness structurally. Uh, we create homelessness structurally. You know, we often try to end it individually through a, you know, a housing subsidy and a case management support of some kind, permanent support of housing, that sort of thing. Uh, but the the root causes of homelessness are not mental illness. It's not addiction. It's not an individual uh, situation of domestic violence. Those are all factors that put people at risk. But the root causes are really a massive disinvestment in affordable housing, the stagnation of wages over decades now, and the way that um, those economic forces hit communities of color, especially. And if you're going to solve homelessness, or in this case, if we're going to prevent what could become a massive wave, and a tidal wave of new homelessness, we've got to come at it structurally. Um, and you know, $1,200 checks from the from the government to, to individual households are, are great, and that's helpful, and that's not enough to stave off the um, the potential long term unemployment and that sort of thing. I'm hearing some people in the media right now talk about the racial disparities around. Uh, COVID cases and COVID deaths impacting black communities, especially that's just in the last couple of days uh, coming onto the, the national 
discourse. Uh, Ibram Kendi just wrote a beautiful piece in The Atlantic that that unpacks this and calls for more transparency in data. What I'm hearing, though, is some people say, well, people of color, black people are more likely to be in poverty. Therefore, uh, you know, this is why they're they're getting sick and, and dying. And And there's some some truth to that. But I think if we really did a deep comparison, we probably wouldn't see the same death rates among poor white people. And so if we did a study right now controlling for poverty, uh, I would guess, this is, this is hypothesizing a little bit, that black communities would still be hit harder even compared to white, you know, poor white communities. So something else is at play. And that is the, you know, decades of um, a healthcare system that was not built by and for people of color, black people, native people, uh, Latino people, Asian immigrants, any anybody. It was built essentially by and for uh, white communities. You, you start adding that up over time, you get higher rates of asthma, which put people at risk for, uh, for contracting uh, COVID or at least having uh, worse symptoms and, and more increased risk, risk of death. So there is the sort of ongoing historical mental health, uh, sorry, medical health care, uh, racial disparities at play. There's also the fact that we have concentrated poverty, concentrated lack of access to all kinds of things from jobs to education to health care in communities that map onto red line maps of the United States that go back to the to the 1930s. And, and if you look at any health disparity map, you could map it right onto the zip codes at play in in uh, in redlining maps and get the same thing. You can also map homelessness onto that. And yet the way we target homelessness resources has been colorblind in a lot of ways. It's not recognized uh, race as an inherent, or let me say racism as, a, as an inherent driver of who becomes homeless. You've been a huge proponent of the Housing First model. That is what Mental Health Association Oklahoma, what we believe in and what we're practicing. We have over 1,500 units of safe, decent, and affordable housing for people who have experienced mental illness, um, who have experienced homelessness, people who have experienced substance use, who have been justice involved. So, as you talk about solutions, let's look five years in the future if you're looking back on COVID and if what you hope will you know stave off this horrible homelessness crisis that is on our front doorstep right now what do you hope is done to prevent it and what role housing will play in that well first of all i i hope that that prediction is wrong that that we are able to aggressively invest in people's housing and economic stability as well as their public health and, and safety and wellness uh, i don't think it's inevitable i think we could with the right choices now prevent homelessness from increasing. Uh, if you look at the the pattern of um, of the the 2009 Recovery and Reinvestment Act that put, well, I think, $1.8 billion into the Homelessness Prevention and Rapid Rehousing Initiative, I, I believe that um, put a cap on what might have become a, a real homelessness catastrophe. And what we saw instead was a an incremental decrease in homelessness over over the following years. I don't think it was as dramatic a decrease as many of us would like to see. We'd like to be done with our work ending homelessness by now. But that's one example, I think, on a smaller scale of how we were able to, to do some, some serious prevention. 
I think the reason that money didn't have more of an impact in decreasing homelessness was that states and cities were suffering tremendous loss of revenue and were not able to to match or invest um, at, at the same level that they might under better economic circumstances. So you, you end up with the federal money uh, kind of supplanting what might have been there at the state level or the local level or the philanthropic uh, donations and, and things like that. So the, the lesson there is that you would want all of that working together, philanthropic dollars, a massive federal investment of resources in housing, in mental health care, in all, all sorts of supports to, to get people through this and stabilize them. Um, back to your question on, on Housing First or your, your comment about that, I think Housing First starts with a basic belief that housing is a human right. It's not something to be earned. It's not something that needs to be tied to having a job, having income, um, it needs to be a given, just like we've decided that education is, just like some states have decided that healthcare is. We can make those public policy decisions. Um, around how I find hope in this, if I sort of you know step five years yeah. into the future and, and look back, <laughs> one of the lessons from the Great Depression, uh, and, I, and I think there are some other historical echoes of this, is that desperate times can shift people into different paradigms of thinking. And it, the the economic catastrophe and the economic collapse of the early 1930s gave people an openness to more progressive public policy. That's when the the federal government invested in all of the the New Deal programs, the um, federal transient service, which was a homelessness program in the 1930s, the Social Security Administration creating a a basic safety net for uh, for elderly people. And then in the subsequent investment in affordable housing that we saw beginning in the 30s up through the early 1970s before the Fed started disinvesting, we saw a 30-year blitz on uh, on affordable housing development. And some of that was public housing. Some of it later became Section 8 program and, and that sort of thing. Um, but that investment in housing and that investment in ultimately Medicaid and Medicare in the 60s, Social Security beginning in the 30s, all came together to reduce homelessness uh, from huge rates in the in the 30s, and you know unemployment rates of 25% and millions of people homeless all across the U.S. down to the point in the in the 50s and 60s where homelessness was not really a major public health issue. It was not you know there was a little bit of homelessness. There were skid rows. There were um, you know cage motels and SRO housing and you know people living on the edge, but nothing like the scale that we saw during the depression. Nothing like the scale that we've seen over the last 40 years. The, the homelessness crisis we find ourselves in prior to COVID is human made. It's based on policies that we have made. And my belief and my hope is that if we made such a dysfunctional system, we can create a better system. So this year, the Zero Mental Health Symposium, our theme is healing from historical trauma. And, and we've invited Dr. Cornell West to be a keynote speaker again. He's going to come back, which is amazing. The reason that we're focusing on historical trauma is that in 1921 here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we were the site of the worst race massacre in American history. It's amazing how many people don't know this story that 300 people of color died in this race massacre, but nobody knows about this story. You know, we had 60 Minutes and the New York Times and things like that. They realize that it's been 100 years almost. And so, the national media has taken some attention here and come and wanted to tell this story that no one knows. And so, how much do you know about the race massacre? Are you familiar with this? 
one thing I know about the the Tulsa massacre was that it's been rebranded as the Tulsa race riots over the years, which is a uh, a way of shifting uh, blame not from the white supremacists who massacred uh, several hundred African American citizens um, onto the black community itself, and and that you can again look at that pattern through. Um, you know, events during the civil rights era in the South. I'm from Alabama originally, and um, uh, several months ago was at the uh, lynching memorial that Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative have uh, have built, and it is a spectacular place. I would I would commend all your listeners to make a pilgrimage to Montgomery and go to the Legacy Museum and the and the lynching memorial. In that memorial, there it, one of the the counties that's represented is your county in the Tulsa. Uh, the, there's a, a tribute to the the victims of the of the massacre there. Uh, that was one of the the worst, most egregious events of the 20th century. Uh, it is one of many egregious events in the 20th century and and before and since. Um, and you know, in some ways, it's on all of us to bear witness to that history. The other thing I would say is. You know, in the the work to advance racial equity these days, there are some tremendous uh, leaders that you've mentioned, Cornell West. I mentioned uh, Ibram Kendi earlier. Many of our colleagues in the in the homelessness space um, are, are really pushing this work forward. Um, Amanda Andiri, Mark Dones, Jessica Venegas, Regina Cannon. There there are many folks who have uh, uh, who have really stepped up on this. Many people of color. What I long for is more white allies being vocal leaders in this group. And that group of people I just mentioned around national homelessness work is also joined by a number of white leaders. Uh, Britt Manzo and, and Megan Gibbard-Klein and others are very much part of that work. But when I look around, I see a lot of white leaders of organizations, white political leaders, elected officials, a little unsure how to tackle uh, racism. And so they'll often stand back. They'll often defer to colleagues who are people of color, which is appropriate. You want to you want to certainly, uh, as a white ally, not dominate the the dialogue. But my goodness, we need we need white leaders to step courageously into the space of racial equity, uh, to train themselves up, to dive into understanding this and unpacking it and honing their skills to advance equality, advance justice, advance equity in, in all of our spheres. I, I come back to homelessness a lot because that's where my passion is and it's where my work has been. But the same is true in mental health. The same is true in education. The same is true in healthcare. The same is certainly true in our understanding of and our response to the, uh, the COVID crisis. Yeah. Okay. Um, so my last question is, you know, speaking of um, that theme of, for the Zero Mental Health Symposium, healing from historical trauma. So, you know, how can America heal from the historical trauma that is homelessness? You know, one of the one of the issues about healing from trauma is that you have to get to a place of safety first. Uh, it's hard to heal from domestic violence if you're still in a violent relationship. It's hard to heal from any number of physical traumas, sexual traumas, mental health traumas until you start getting some distance from that. And in a lot of ways, we are still very much in the middle of the fight to end homelessness in this country. And that fight just got more complicated with the, the coronavirus. 
the healing that can happen on the individual level is profound and ongoing that, you know, we, we see people exit homelessness all the time into housing and housing first has been a, a huge factor in ensuring that. But in terms of healing our collective trauma, the collective trauma that we inf- have inflicted on many of our brothers and sisters who have become homeless and on our own hearts and souls uh, as, as people who have not stopped it from happening over the years, even though, again, many of us are in that fight as a, as a society, we have let that happen. We've made policy decisions that let that happen. We've elected officials who have gutted safety net programs, gutted investment in affordable housing. We continue to do that. You can't fully heal until you get beyond it. You can't heal from the original sin of slavery while people are still enslaved. You can't heal from homophobia and all of the the terror that has uh, gone on with hate crimes against gay people uh, until you have marriage equality, until you have civil rights protections in place. You can't heal from gender inequality until you establish equal pay for equal work. Uh, And you can't heal from homelessness until we don't have homelessness anymore. We can do self-care. I think we can, you know, do things that put our own oxygen mask on first, as they say, uh, before helping others and and kind of regroup and and re-energize. And I think events like the Zero Symposium are great for that, for people who are working in mental health and in housing and homelessness. But to truly heal from it, we've got to end it first. And uh, that's the work ahead. It's a mistake to to declare victory prematurely, to to assume that because we've ended you know one segment of homelessness, for example, veteran homelessness or chronic homelessness in a community that our work is done. Those are only building blocks. Those are starting points. It's not the ultimate victory over this thing. The other thing I would say around the collective trauma of this is that we've got to take care of each other. And I think COVID will teach us that as well, how to come together, how to reach out, how to um, love on each other in a, di- in a deeper and a different way than we, than we have before. I think we can be a better society. I think we can be a better people because of this crisis we're going through together right now. Wow. Okay. So as we end every podcast, I always ask the, the guests for a last bit of wisdom. And then um, our rallying cry, which is our from our CEO, Mike Bros, he always tells us at the end of every meeting, go do good things. And I think, you know, even even as we're social distance from each other and we're all in Zoom calls, that's that's something that we're all keeping in mind that, you know, we all can make a difference. So, Jeff, thank you so much for being here on the Mental Health Download. This is a tremendous, tremendous honor. So if you could just share that bit of wisdom and close us out with go do good things, we'll be done. Well, I think um, I think Mike's got it right. Go do good things. I would amend it a little bit and say keep doing good things. Uh, so many of uh, your listeners and so many of our friends and colleagues around the country are doing incredible work and doing incredible work right in the midst of this crisis. Uh, healthcare for the homeless, uh, clinic staff and outreach workers, street outreach folks who are getting people housed in, in hotels around the country, not to mention the grocery store workers, the delivery drivers, the the food prep people who are working in, in kitchens. And there are so many people doing good right now. I, I guess I would leave you with um, something that... Uh, that, that I come back to a lot in times like this. You know, uh, Dr. King said the arc of the moral universe is long, uh, but it bends towards justice. He, he was building on uh, Theodore Parker, uh, 19th century theologian, and saying that. Uh, President Obama took that one step further and said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And he added, but it doesn't bend by accident. We bend it. We bend it based on choices we make every day when we wake up in the morning 
about how we're going to be part of the solution. COVID-19 has impacted the people Mental Health Association Oklahoma serves every day. People impacted by mental illness, homelessness, substance use, and justice involvement. And we continue to serve the most vulnerable in our communities, but that's coming with many unexpected expenses. We have established a COVID-19 relief fund to assist us in the emergency services we are providing. Help us serve our participants in need of rental assistance, mental health care, food and shelter, and other basic necessities. Go to Mental Health Association Oklahoma's Facebook page to contribute or visit our website at mhaok.org and hit the donate button at the top of the page.